Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. Phone lines, 855-450-NOAH. Email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice hers. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from a cold but beautiful South Dakota. It's going to get worse before it gets better, Steve. You know what? I don't mind it. The sun is shining. I, I'm not complaining. That's, that's, a, that's a good attitude, Steve. I like it. Well, the northern in me doesn't mind the cold, so I was out there working <laughs> without a jacket today. Ooh. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd be doing that in North Dakota with 17 degrees right now but it's supposed to warm up in the 60s for the rest of the week so look forward to yeah, that i can't complain all right let's jump into some feedback our first email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says hi no one steve i hope you're both doing well i'll get right to my question a year ago or so i created a nas with open media vault on a raspberry pi as a cheap energy efficient way to access movies and tv shows on all my cody raspberry pies throughout the house it works Perfectly with virtually zero downtime, other than the occasional rebooting of the Pi or open with open media vault on it. I need a project and I have a spare i3 computer. And since I'm familiar with open media vault, I was going to play around with it some more. My friend and I are constantly sharing videos between us. And I was going to use this as a server, basically just as a taxi that he can upload and download from. I generally do not want a NAS outside of my LAN. This will just be for the taxi service, nothing else. Do you know the best way to go about getting this up and running securely? My second question. In the future, I'd like to build my own NAS with LVM just to be able to create swap and bad drives with ease. I think a while ago you were talking up FreeNAS, which I believe is based on BSD, as being so easy and straightforward. That's just about anyone can do it. What do you recommend as an upgrade from the baby's first NAS? Do you still recommend the above mention? Thanks for all you do on your show, Corey. So, Steve, I want to dig into this i3 computer thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not quite following here. If the goal here is to have a taxi service for, for data, well, why, why do we need a computer? Why, why, don't we just, uh, why don't we just have a hard drive? Well, I suppose if you mean like one of those what are they called? My books or whatever the the hard drives that have some sort of smarts built into them from from various manufacturers. I mean, you could do that. It would mean proxying through their their services. I suppose you could attach an external hard drive to a router or something like that. But you're that that is kind of a scary idea too. So I mean, with a computer, you can do quite a bit more in terms of securing it and providing access to outside. Okay, so the idea here is mostly that it's a self-contained unit sort of a deal. Well, I mean, if you're talking about fill up a hard drive and then hand it over to your friend, I suppose, but that's not defeats the purpose since they're looking to learn how to do a thing. Mm. Um, and we also don't know where his friend is or how convenient it is. Like, is he like, you're my friend. Do you want to come down and get a hard drive, Noah? Like, yeah, it's fair, only fair. a short five-hour drive or something like that. Like. So, yeah, I mean, to me, 
it seems to be a dual purpose of like, yeah, I'd like to actually be able to share some files, but I'm just using this as it, an excuse to do something techie. Okay. All right. So I can, I, maybe I can get on board with that. All right. So uh, his question is anything about getting it set up securely? I mean, if the laptop is going to be repurposed as a NAS, I might, I might set up TrueNAS on uh, on the, the on the server that you're trying to replace, as well as the laptop, and then you could potentially use ZFS Send to go between. Yeah, you definitely could do that. Although that doesn't um, that doesn't help exposing it to the internet. Like essentially, he wants to send stuff. <clears throat> pardon me, Corey wants to send stuff to his friend, who is presumably somewhere else, not in the same house. Although we don't actually have that information, but because we're talking about securing it over the internet. Um, my thought is something like, I I use Tink in the past. I okay. know that there are people out there, our friends at Jupiter Broadcasting, really like Tailscale and those sorts of things. That would be the f- first way that I would go because it it keeps it secure insofar as you're not punching holes through your firewall in order to enable your like specific ports to be shared. I mean, they could just set up a site to site as well. You could, but a site-to-site means that you are also maintaining that, whereas Tink or Tail tail Scale or whatever um, is supposed to come up similar to WireGuard, right? Like, you could also yeah. do this WireGuard because it's mm. – um, you could do a point-to-point with, with uh, two machines on the WireGuard because that's not too onerous to set up. Um, and the idea is just that as soon as the device comes up, then it will join its mesh network or VPN or whatever you whatever you've got going on. If you have comments to add, you're welcome to join us in our interactive mumble room. You can learn more at docs.mindripmedia.com slash mumble. It'll walk you through the entire process of how to get mumble set up, how to get connected. Joining us via mumble is Sleuth. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. Um, So I was listening to you talk about this question, and I really think that an overlay network is exactly what he needs to look out for here. Okay. Uh, An overlay network will create kind of a virtual LAN where he can put the server, he can put any of his devices and he can put any of his friends' devices on and then they can all talk to that mm. box, whatever it is, w- whether it's running you know, uh, TrueNAS or if it's running you know, just an Ubuntu box or whatever, you, know, you can set up a file share on that and it'll expose a port and it'll be just like you normally would. It would just use a different IP range. So then that would make it a lot easier for him regardless of what software he decides to go for on the box. Okay. I like that. Now- you need an overlay that would support the internet, though, right? Because we're talking about going outside of the LAN. So, um, so yeah, something like TailScale or Nebula would work for this. If you don't want to use the hosted version of TailScale, there's also a, something called HeadScale, which is the management backend service for TailScale, but it's open source and you can host it yourself. So that'll kind of act as your node to get everything connected, but then they'll, they'll talk directly to each other the servers just to make the connection. And what would be, this is an honest question, having not used either tail scale or head scale, what would be kind of the difference or the advantage of doing that over something like Tink? I am not you, familiar with Tink. No. 
So Tink Tink came but around before. Let's, let's, yeah. let's not get let's not get too. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways you could connect one site to another site. But the the general idea here is we want to encrypt the data in transit. So whether you do that with OpenVPN as a site to site, whether you do that with Tink, whether you do that with Tailscale, whether you do that with WireGuard, it's the same concept. You're trying to create. You want to create a secure tunnel from your side to the other side. Um, and so depending on what you what those endpoints look like might factor into how you make that decision. So for example, if you know you're going to set it up one time and leave it and you have VMs on one side on on either side, you might go the software route. If you are each using, you know, DDWRT or or PFSense or OpenSense, you could use uh, OpenVPN and have a site-to-site tunnel. If you wanted something uh easy and simple and, and, and just want to set something up, that's where I would get to tail scale or head scale, something like that, where you just kind of follow a guide. Um, but that's that's phase one. Then the other phase is what do we actually use for the storage system, right? And so this is where we get into this repurposed i3 laptop. It doesn't, I suppose to a degree, it doesn't matter. Like you could put Open Media Vault on it. You could put TrueNAS on it. You could put, you just put Ubuntu on it and put ZFS um, what I like about ZFS, though, and, and Steve, I'd be interested in your thoughts, is, again, ZFS Send, that ability to send and receive the entire data set, which is much faster, in my experience, than rsync, and has the opportunity to send that as an encrypted data stream or unencrypted. So that assumes that you have sort of equal amount of storage for the data set on both sides, which may or may not be the case, mm. right? It didn't sound like he wanted to replicate things, but rather just to be able to be like, hey, you know what? I'll trade you my Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man, and you give me Batman. And when we're done, you know, we delete the files. So that's what the mm. impression that I got mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to mirror uh, off-site. I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're just storing them there relatively temporary. I mean, that story so is welcome to write back in, but... Mm. Go ahead, Sleuth. So regardless of what he chooses for the physical like file system, he could use something called SyncThing, which Ooh, it's yeah. not as good as ZFS Send because it is not block-based, it is file-based. However, he would be able to set that up on both ends and it do that. And he wouldn't even need a VPN for that because uh, SyncThing actually has relay servers already and they can make relay connections outbound without ports, no port forwarding at all because it handles it just like Tailscale does with a relay node, and then it'll connect them together. And then uh, I believe so the traffic is not encrypted unless if he says he wants it to be encrypted, but that's on the... It, everything's encrypted in transit. That's just for on, like, a server. But you can actually tell it, I don't want to trust this device, I want it to be encrypted. You can do that with uh, SyncThing as well. So that might be another thing to look out for, because then you can add more and more devices to that. You don't even need this dedicated box. You could just say, you know, hey, I have a laptop. Linux Ninja in the chat room says, Tink and Tailscale do mostly the same thing, but Tink is more manual. We use Tink with a proxy to connect multiple sites together for unencrypted UDP traffic. Gives us a great way to protect UDP listening ports and encrypt the traffic. Zimboard or a NUC would accomplish the same thing, but it would allow you to bypass needing AC input. Sync thing was what I was thinking of, but it eats bandwidth depending on the size of the files to transport. Um, and and he says, with all of these, no VPN or overlay network is required. It handles NAT busting. Sync thing has a mobile app as well. So, yeah, that might be a real option to go through. I also understand, is it uh, Bradley? 
I think is 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 joining us or or will join us. Hey, Bradley. We lost Bradley. All right. Yeah. Well, oh, my shoulder. There we go. Hey, Hello. Hi there. Oh, hey. Sorry. This is uh, first time using that. I figured it out. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, I had a question for you. I have a wire guard set up um, on PF Sense and on my iPhone. I've also tried it on Mac, uh, and uh, I can connect to my local network no problem and see all my services. However, I have no DNS whatsoever, so I'm trying to route it through to my PFSense box because I do some ad blocking and stuff like that. Okay. Um, however, when I connect from my phone uh, through WireGuard, I just I get no DNS resolution whatsoever. I have to enter everything by IP address, um, and I don't know what's going on. I, I tried to put the, the DNS server as, as the as the IP of my uh, PSNs box, uh-huh. and allow all IPs on um, on the config, and I can't seem to figure it out. Okay, um, Steve, you have any thoughts on what might be wrong with his WireGuard setup? Well, so WireGuard usually makes you choose a different IP stack that your PFSense may not be aware of, right? So, like if your if your regular network is one nine two one six eight one dot whatever. When you're setting up the the WireGuard, you usually have to tell it what um, IP range you're going to use for the WireGuard, which, like most people, use ten dot something. Mm. Your PFSense is not going to know and or respond to something outside of its subnet unless you configure it to do so, right? Because it doesn't have an interface on that subnet. It's not controlling it. It doesn't know about it. So. Thought number one is that unless you are allowing the you're allowing the DNS to route through the WireGuard host, um, the PFSense box is probably just not going to listen to it. Mm. That would that would be my first thought, anyways. Sleuth in the chat room says, "Have him dig with an at to set the DNS server and see what he gets back." Uh, Tiny asks, "Does the WireGuard peer have DNS setting configured?" So those might all be things you might check into, Bradley, and uh, and maybe give that a shot and, and check it out. And, and if it doesn't work, then hop back and l- let us know. Again, uh, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So I, I feel like we didn't quite finish up uh, Corey's feedback here. So he says, in the future, he'd like to build his own NAS with LVM, set up swap hard drives. I think a while ago you're talking about free NAS, which I believed is based on BSD being so easy and straightforward. Um, so here's the deal. What interest, what's appealing to me about, and it's now TrueNAS, uh, that's the evolution of, of FreeNAS, is that it, underneath the hood, it's ZFS. And so it enables you to do a whole lot of enterprise like things uh, and keep your data safe. The advantage of TrueNAS over just installing the ZFS package on like Ubuntu, for example, is that you get a web UI. And so uh, personally at home, when I did my latest upgrade, I put new drives in my server. I didn't bother setting up TrueNAS. It would have been unneeded overhead. So I just installed Ubuntu on a box. I threw uh, ZFS on there. I threw some drives in there, created a share, had the whole thing up and running in maybe five minutes. Um, Very simple to do. The problem is you have to be comfortable going into Etsy slash smb.conf and creating your share by hand. 
Whereas with TrueNAS, you type in the IP address of the server, it pulls up a web UI, you click on shares, you click add new shares, it has a little wizard, it has an ACL thing to set permissions and stuff like that. And so if you're doing it, particularly if you're doing it with anybody else, it's really nice to have a way to actually kind of manage that. That's where my that's where my my, my plug for TrueNAS comes in. Steve, what do you use for a file server? Or maybe a better way to phrase that, what would you recommend for somebody who's looking to get into a file server? I like TrueNAS as a as a starting point for sure. Um, it gives you a nice UI. I personally still roll like the default. Like I I just have a an install that does either Samba or NFS or both mm-hmm. on top of ZFS in in my NASes, and that's just the way that I like to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's so. just Ubuntu for the base. It is because it's it's nice and easy with the ZFS uh, kernel modules kind of baked in. Yeah, and there's there's an important point here. If you try to do this with RHEL or CentOS or Alma or Rocky, it requires a DKMS kernel to get ZFS working, which is far from ideal. Um, so in the chat room, it looks like the chat room has decided what Bradley's problem is. Uh, it says, yes, the DNS config does need to add the VPN client subnet as allowed. I forgot about that. Gotcha. Um, and there's a couple of people saying they've seen this same problem. Uh, this would be a good time to point out that our chat room is available 24-7-365. You can learn more at geeklab.ninja. You can join the chat for free. You can join poundgeeklab.linuxdelta.com from any matrix client. Uh, and filled with a few thousand people of really, really smart technical nerds who just love to love to talk about tech. Um, and so if you want access to that, we'd invite you to join us in, in the chat room. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day, everyone. I came across this. It might be interesting for the community. And he links to a blog on do-it-yourself digital correction with Linux. And then he also links to a cheap microphone. And so the backstory here Around 2009, I'd built a home theater personal computer setup. It involved a Linux PC running Xbox Media Center, XBMC, and some very basic home theater equipment, namely a surround sound system. XBMC, now Cody, played DVDs, rips, DVDs, YouTube on top of Linux. The PC was connected to TV via HDMI. And so the idea was they uh, had an opposite system that was installed by professionals with theater seating and a rack and a touchscreen and all of those kinds of things. And so uh, essentially, um, they, he spent a lot of time digging through the digital signal processing and, and the room correction to try to get uh, the exact right sound that he wanted. And at first, they had a lot of criticism for Linux and the audio subsystem. But after he dug into it, he found that it's actually really powerful and there's a lot of really advanced things that you can do with things like ULSA. Um, and so the, I, I, I won't ruin the article for you. I'll just, we'll have it linked for you in, in podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's quite lengthy, uh, but it, it's, it, this is a really great idea and a really great road to go down if you're the kind of person that really cares about really dialing in your audio or if you have uh, a home theater system this might be a really way to, uh, really great way to do that. And one of the things I like in particular is Charlie includes a link to an Amazon microphone so you can purchase one off of Amazon uh, to get this up and running. And uh, looks like uh, it's not terribly expensive. Um, looks like it's 23 bucks, 24 bucks. 
So plugs into your phone or plugs into your laptop and could be a really easy way to get this off the ground. So we'll have links for you in the show notes if you want to read. Uh, would be uh, highly recommend you check it out. Uh, Tiny joins us from the interactive mumble room. Hey, Tiny, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah, I wanted to ask a quick question about different email hosts. Shoot. So right now I'm self-hosting my own mail server on MailCow, and it's I'm going through all the headaches people commonly described, and I'm wondering what would be the benefits of using a privacy-focused email host like ProtonMail or uh, Start Email, mm. or using something more generic like Fast Email that's or Fast Mail. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I would start by saying that if you're exchanging emails with somebody else who isn't using a email service and or an email client that supports encryption doesn't do you a whole lot of good at all, right? Like if you set, you sign up for ProtonMail and you send something to somebody who's on, you know, Office 365, well, Microsoft has a copy of that message, so you've not really done much in the way of security. I would say that it's nice from a standpoint that if anybody ever targets you specifically and says like, I want to get access to your emails or they come after you with a warrant, that is where ProtonMail is going to offer you some protection because they, they'd they have to go, they'd have to find all of the people that you sent or received emails from and they'd have to go get that side of the copy. They won't be able to get it from you. And then, of course, if you do have people that sign up for ProtonMail, they would be able, then, then the message is, is encrypted and they're not going to get it from either side. I will tell you myself, and I'll let Steve answer too, I use ProtonMail primarily, not because I think it's a fantastic experience and offers me, uh, you know, all this privacy stuff. It's just, I live in a world, I need email, I want to support a company who values my privacy. Uh, Andy, uh, Andy Yen and Proton have done a fantastic job of exemplifying good stewardship in security and privacy and open, you know, an open source and supporting Linux and being available. Uh, he comes on this program. And he's very open and honest about what they can do, what they can't do. So I want to throw my money in his direction and I want to support the people that are doing that kind of work. Steve, I know you're a Proton Mail user. Why do you continue to pay for Proton Mail and what kind of privacy do you do you aim to get out of it? Yeah, um, I went through this exercise a couple of years ago before COVID hit, and uh, I ultimately walked away working with Proton Mail because I liked the story around it. I found them trustworthy, at, at least as far as I could determine. And at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> they always say vote with your wallet. I'm looking at what the stated goals of the places are, and Proton Mail has a track record of at least attempting to do the right thing when it comes mm -hmm. to privacy. And if we don't, if you look at it like, well, I could save a couple of bucks by going with fast mail and that's your concern, that's your choice. But if we don't stand up and, and back the people that are, are holding similar values, that's showing that we actually don't like, there's not a market for that and it will go away. So at the end of the day, it was a couple of choices like, my wife and I each have our own like mail domains and stuff like that because I used to self-host the email years, years and years and years. Um, and the only reason that I moved away was because I didn't mind the little headaches for my own email, which I'd mo largely gotten ironed out. But my wife went with a new TLD. Mm -hmm. So her TLD would get rejected just as like it's, it's dot shoes. And, and so it's coming from a self, a self-hosted email and it's dot shoes, right? So 
or you know whatever and that just was causing no end of of headaches where that's something that i couldn't really rectify so coming from a domain that's respect <clears throat> at least respected worldwide for being an actual email server that made my life easier for her as opposed to trying to figure out you know hey my emails are bouncing or someone said they didn't get my email which is more likely with the report and trying to troll through that I haven't got one of those comments since we moved to ProtonMail. Do you find it obnoxious that places ban entire domains before they've suffered any abuse or problems from said domain just because it ends in .shooser? I actually had an employee had the same problem. He registered a domain and he registered the domain with a random string of, you know, it's like F-G-Y-X-P-Y, you know, just a, just a random string of letters. And the idea was precisely to be it didn't mean anything. It wasn't Googleable. It wasn't. It wasn't anything. And he has problems all the time. The places won't accept it. They take one look at it and say, "Yeah, I'm not accepting that." Has been a. It's eased off the last year or two for sure, but the the regular forms would just be like, and we need like. We, that's not an email address. Doesn't end in .com because mm. their stupid regex is just looking for .com. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we went a little f- far afield from the uh, from the original question. But does that ultimately comes? Does that yeah. help you, Tiny? Uh, follow up question: How's your experience using the Proton Mail bridge? The thing I'm apprehensive about is wife factor. So it's something else that one of us has to set up on her PC. And I'm lazy and don't yeah. want to have that. Like, I don't want to change mobile email clients and it doesn't look like it supports Android. I would tell you it's okay. It's not great. It's okay. It works. It certainly does. Um, but A, I, so I, I ran into some, I, that's a complicated question. So to start, I, I'm running it on KDE, and KDE has its own set of problems that really probably don't apply anywhere else, but it requires the GNOME keyring manager in order to run the Proton Bridge. So the first problem I ran into was I tried to set it up, and it wouldn't allow me to store the credentials because it didn't have the GNOME keyring installed. So I had to install the GNOME keyring, which of course means every time I reboot the computer, then it's prompting me for a separate password just for GNOME keyring so that that can unlock. And then the bridge has to run as a piece of software that runs down in, in the tray, which is, you know, fine, whatever, I guess. But now that's one more thing that has to be running. And then the other thing that I'm just not crazy about is, so it runs a little local IMAP server that Thunderbird connects to. And in theory, the local firewall on the laptop should prevent anybody from getting in from the outside but there's just something weird about having services run on my laptop all the time uh it's just i would prefer that i didn't have to do that i would prefer that there was a way that only when i opened thunderbird it would run the bridge and go out and do all of its magic or something like that and i get it if you want encryption you have to have some sort of way to take encryption and turn it into unencryption so there's that i would add as you're thinking about this discussion, Tiny, I would implore you in the strongest possible way to consider Fastmail is great if you're trying to get away from something like G Suite and you're looking for something that's more cost effective, but it's going into a business. When you start looking at privacy, Fastmail is run by Australia, I think. And so they're part of the Five Eyes Network. I don't know that I would put a whole lot of faith in 
uh, security of Fastmail. I think they're very they're fine in the way of they won't sell your information. I don't know that I would put put it past them to give it up to a government that comes asking for it. So take that for what it's worth. I'm assuming that whatever three-letter agency, for whatever weird reason, wants my email, the provider is going to comply with them. Like, I don't view yeah. email as secure, okay. and I would either set up a separate channel or something else to send sensitive information. But it sounds like it's a trade-off between, like, ease of use versus tinfoil. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's on it. Fastmail, I would tell you, if you're looking for ease of use, Fastmail, I would tell you, is a drop in mail server. Like you you go into Thunderbird, you open it up, you type in your name, you type in your email, you click next, you wait a second, it goes and figures out all of the server details and asks you for your password. When it asks you for your password, you don't put in your account password, you log into the Fastmail web UI, you generate an app password specifically for your for that particular client, and then you log in using that one password. You go to set up another instance of Outlook, it gets its own password. So nothing is ever sharing IMAP credentials, which is kind of nice. Also, Linux Ninja in the chat room adds that the ProtonMail bridge are always it runs by default on 127.0.0.1, so it shouldn't accept traffic anywhere else. So he says the firewall is irrelevant. So take that for what it's worth. All right, we'll take a break here. We'll head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom. We'll get the latest from JT, and then we'll continue with your questions next. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Linus Torvalds announces the first Linux kernel 6.1 release candidate. 6.1 kernel will include Rust modules, fixes for Wi-Fi CVEs, PowerPC improvements with KFence, syscall wrappers, and execute-only memory, as well as secure erase support for Vert.io. In other kernel news, the 37-year-old Amiga platform gets an update to the Linux kernel. VirtualBox 7.0 has been released with Linux secure boot support and a new interface. Ardor 7.0 has been released. LibreOffice has released version 7.4.2 with 80 bug fixes. And Blender has announced that in its next version, version 3.4, they will include Wayland support. KDE Plasma 5.26 is out, and Tails 5.5 has been released. However, the devs have announced that recently announced kernel vulnerabilities will prompt another update soon. EuroLinux is a new Linux desktop distribution built upon Red Hat Enterprise Linux that promises 10-year support. Juno has announced a new Linux tablet available for pre-order. The global Linux operating system market was valued at $5.33 billion in 2021. A new report has been released that states that it is projected to grow to $6.27 billion in 2022 and to around $22 billion by 2029. CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has released RedEye, an interactive open-source analytic toolkit to visualize and report Red Team command and control activities. Thank you, JT. You'll hear his newscast at the bottom of the show. We try to get that in every week. Gives you a nice, concise look at what went on throughout the week. Our third email comes in from Dustin. Dustin writes back in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve. I called in on episode 305 to ask about a bill pay issue after my church switched internet providers. A big thanks to the community who took the time to try to help me solve my problem. And also a huge thanks to both you and Steve for having some awesome show that day that allows the community to interact and help with each other. I have some good news and I have some bad news. Good news first. 
The bill pay started working for my wife about three days after I called the show. The bad news is I still have no idea why it started working. Me and the wife had worked through the trouble shooting steps that we had discussed on the show. We had a game plan, and before we could get to testing, it just started working. I'd love to call the bank and find out what changed, but I think it would be a giant waste of time. Nothing changed on the network end for my church, and my assumption is that any unknown provider is blacklisted and just took the bank a while to get it all figured out with the bill pay company. Also, on episode 305, Jason called in and asked about streaming providers for churches. I stream with an Atom Mini and OBS. Started out streaming to Facebook, and that was okay. It just seemed like I was always chasing some issue with Facebook, like my stream key or interface changes or whatever. Just always something to tweak. I recently switched to YouTube, and my gosh, a breath of fresh air. It just works. All I do is update the relevant info each week, press the live button. My stream key has stayed the same, no more chasing random things, and I still post the link on Facebook each week to keep that audience in the loop. Thanks, Dustin. So only follow-up I would have to that, Steve, is YouTube is great until it isn't, right? It works until it doesn't. As long as you aren't saying anything that they find objectionable or you know, pull down worthy, you'll be fine. The second that they decide they don't want you on their platform, that's when you're going to run into a problem. I think that's the same with any platform though. I, I know that Google or YouTube has some particular, um, let's say past about that. I'm not sure how much that applies to church services just because lots of church services stream to YouTube. So, hmm. I mean, maybe. Yeah, my, my thought is if you're using a, a, you know, a service like Resi or, or Scale Engine, those are services that you're putting on your site. So like, let's just say Alan Jude gets up on a high horse and, and decides in his Canadian way that he isn't going to support your silly stream. Then he just he pulls down his service and says, I kick you off. Well, that's fine because you went to mydomain.com slash stream. Now I just take another provider and I re-embed my thing or I just set up Nginx and now I'm back in business. So I feel like when you're on YouTube, you're relying on that platform as a landing place for your people. When you can take control of at least that landing place, then you can swap the pieces out underneath behind the scenes in the kitchen without the people sitting at the dining table getting affected. I mean, I'm always in favor of doing that, but that that level of setup is is a significant amount of more care and feeding in the long run, right? So yeah. if you if you're going to make it flexible, then that usually means that you have to have a lot more forethought and some technical understanding of how things are working. Mm, very true. Uh, Linux Ninja says when he used to work and support churches, he used a, a company called StreamingFaith.com. So we'll have a link to all of that in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in from Elise. Elise writes in and says, hi, guys, new listener to your show. I'm looking to start my own law office in the next year or so, and I wanted to get your ideas as to any technical things I should be considering. I know you're not cloud guys, but what cost effective way can I build my office and keep me from being a, a, a part time IT role? So I guess, Steve, let me ask you this. If some, if your friend came to you and said, Steve, I'm starting a business, what technical thing should I, what should I buy right off the bat? Is there anything that you would look at and say, doesn't really matter what your business is, doesn't really matter what your business model is, you should have these three or these five, you know, technical things in order to get yourself started? I mean, if you're a law firm, I imagine that you want to, at a minimum, have a file server that is easily accessible. Yeah. 
um, a printer that is probably heavy duty. I I have no idea, but I imagine you need some pretty heavy duty cycles on a on a decent printer. So that's not going to be cheap. And I would definitely go with uh, a laser printer for sure. I don't oh, know that's if a color. Good. I don't know if a color laser printer is necessarily warranted. Maybe it is, but uh, yeah, I would start off with those two things. And maybe an IP phone. I guess it depends mm. on how much long distance you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's excellent advice. So I, I'll dovetail onto that a little bit. Um, file server, completely agree with that. I would say, I've said this before on the show, I think if you're getting into any sort of tech thing, file server is a great place to start because almost everything else you do is going to either generate or rely on data. And so having a solid landing place for your data to live and grow from is a good first step. Um, I might also look at what you're going to do network wise. You know, what are you going to put in there? Are you going to take the uh, modem router combo that comes from your ISP? Are you going to buy one? If you're going to buy one, what are you looking at? If you know, she specifically mentions cost effective. Okay. And so I'm looking at this with kind of my budget glass on. I'm the king of cost effective. Uh, Here has been my, my latest love for, for PF sense and, or, uh, uh, firewalls, and that is Sophos. And like half the audience just fell off their chair and went, what did you just say? Yeah, Sophos. So here's what I like about Sophos. It has nothing to do with their software. They make hardware devices that you can buy for 150 to 200 some dollars on eBay. And the nice thing about these boxes are they are just Intel boxes underneath the hood. So all you have to do is plug an HDMI <laughs> in the chat room. I'm getting, no, avoid sofa. No, 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 no. Hear me out. All you have to do is plug an HDMI cable in, plug a USB keyboard, plug a USB mouse, plug a PF sensor, open sense installer in, and a few minutes, and you boot up, it looks like an Intel computer. You'd have no idea that you're not sitting at just a generic desktop computer. The nice thing about the Sophos, even above the NetGate's own product, NetGate does this bonding thing where they take two interfaces and bond them together and then they use VLANs to create the bond and then they split it back out and it's if you it, it's complicated. It, so when you go to do stuff with that interface, you have to take all of that into an account and it, it, it's just it's a process. The Sophos, you install PFSense, you go through, you log into it the first time, it says, tell me what the interfaces are. This is the WAN interface, this is the LAN interface, Bob's your uncle, you've got a blazing fast router for uh, for a couple hundred dollars. And oh, by the way, unlike the little rubber band kit that NetGate sells with their 1100, this has proper rack mount ears that you can plug in. Um, so I, uh, uh, and so, yeah, so I, if you're looking for a budget-friendly way to get into some equipment you're going to need, highly recommend you check out Sophos. Um, then for Steve's comment on the heavy-duty copier printer, completely agree with that. I would also add that there is, in law offices, typically what they will do is they will track and charge every time somebody prints or copies a piece of paper. And so if you get something in for a client and you go to copy that for the client, you will bill them, you know, however many cents per page. And so having a copier that has the ability to track that when you click on the, when, when the print dialog pops up, it will ask you to enter a code and you can enter your client code in there and then it will, it will add that 
job and how many pages of whatever it was to that particular client. So you can print an audit report at the very end and the printer will tell you, hey, this client copied this many pages, printed that many pages, scanned this many pages, so on and so forth. Um, those can be really useful things for a law office. And then, of course, IP phones, you know, we're going to recommend you head over to our friends at Fox Telesis. They do a great job. Um, they're going to they'll help you get the phones. They'll host the phone system for you for just 30 bucks a month and uh, a, a penny per minute. And so you can get the, the phone line itself for like a dollar something a month and they'll take care of everything for you. When you have problems, they have human beings that answer the phone and will walk you through the problem. All of them are technical nerds to the max and they will nerd out with you anytime you need some help. Steve, your thoughts. So I was contemplating the idea of like cost effectiveness while keeping them from basically taking on an IT role. Hmm. And so I don't think those two things necessarily intertwine very well when you're talking about any kind of self-hosting. Yep. If you're <clears throat> if you're not self-hosting, then you are literally at the behest of someone else. Mm -hmm. Like if you're doing like I don't know, Google or OneDrive or whatever. But when you were talking about the um the Sophos thing, I probably would actually lean towards there's a company called Protectly. Yeah. Um, I use them myself. Uh, they're a little bit more expensive than like buying your own box or whatever, but they essentially will ship you something with your uh, router operating system pre-installed mm. and you can do things like ask for core, core boot. So like my, my machine out there has core boot instead of a regular BIOS. Okay. So you, you can do those kind of requests, but they just shipped it to me and I basically plugged it in and like, Hey, look, it's good. Uh, and the one time that I did need to talk to them, I like I got a hold of them immediately, so I have no complaints about um, having to talk with them. And so, if you're like, oh, I don't really want to install a router operating system; I just want it to work. Like, yes. Well, they'll they'll drop it in and they'll they'll QA it for you, and they support so far as like, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how much software support they do, other than like they ship it to you and they kind of guarantee that it's going to work. But aside from that, I'm not exactly sure how much they'll help. Like, I was dealing with um, some issue that looked like it was going to be um, hardware related. And so they were all in digging in with PF sense with me and I was quite happy with them. I'm not sure how, how well that would go if you're like, Hey, I'm running PF sense and can you help me do blah? Mm. Um, but it's walking that fine line between, you know, do I out, the outsource all of this sort of stuff. And the reason why it's cheap is because I'm one of a number of people that maybe I'll get somebody on the phone and maybe I won't. Right. Um, and I'm also giving up whatever it is, privacy or, you know, who knows what they can data mine or they can't. Um, so you've got that on one side. And then on the other side, there is the burden of if you do it yourself, you still like, you're going to be on the hook for if something goes wrong. And just on a quick note, People do lose data from the big vendors and they are not responsible. Yeah. Right. Yes. So that's a thing that gets forgotten a lot. I've had clients that have lost data from, you know, I'm not going to name, but cloud provider X. And they're just like, sorry, that's in our terms of service. Like we do our best, but, you know, too bad. So <laughs> like, with I guess without naming names of this is who lost data, this is what happened. I will tell you that one of the providers we work with offers data protection for Office 365. And when I sit down with clients and explain to them that they have data protection for Office 365 and they go, but it's backed up to the cloud. No, that can't possibly get lost. Well, actually, um, 
and and that and that does it absolutely happens none of these things are perfect and so you know you have to kind of decide where you want your responsibility to start and end i would also encourage you to do this I don't think it necessarily has to be a black and white thing, right? I don't think it necessarily has to be I'm the IT person and I have to do it all myself or I have to completely hand the keys to the kingdom over to somebody else. There are absolutely IT providers out there that will work with you, that will come alongside with side you and they will help you manage your network. So uh, and if if you if you sit down with an IT company and in your area and say, hey, I want to schedule a meeting. I want you to come over and you tell them, here's what I want to do. Here's kind of the what I'm thinking I, I want set up and here's kind of how I want to do it. I want you to communicate back to me anytime you do something. I want to be involved in the documentation because I want to know what was changed and when it was changed and I want to maintain those things and I want to stay in the driver's seat of my practice. If, if an IT company isn't positively receptive to that kind of ask, you probably need to work with a different IT company. You know, I hear those. There's this uh, company out there called Alta Speed. They they do a bunch of good stuff like that. I understand. Yeah, we do. You know, so sh shameless self promotion. We'd be happy to help. But there's others too. You know, CTC Solutions is out there. All a lot. There's a lot of companies out there, and and it's growing. Companies that are they're smaller, they're more agile, and they are they're they're they are dedicated to serving other people and other organizations. And I would I would start. I would always start with some place in my local area. So unless you live in Grand Forks, I'm, I might start by finding an IT provider that's in your area. And I would tell them, hey, you know what? I, I'm not complete. I'm not I'm not a techie, but I'm techie enough that I listen to a podcast about technology and I have some ideas. And here's kind of what I'm thinking. How can you come alongside me and support me? And when I get into trouble, will you help me with these things? And based on their reaction of that, I think I would make a lot of decisions based on that. Um, you don't give a lot of details in your email. So if you wanted to write back in and say, here are some specific questions I have, um, we'd be happy to address them. I will tell you, we have a law office client. They run three offices. Uh, they have all open, an entire open source stack uh, in, their, in their rack. So everything from their router to their servers, all, all the virtualization stuff, all of it's open source. Um, there's, they, they, they do something called conflict resolution, which is if you represent client a and somewhere down the road, client B comes in is, has a case against client a, you as an attorney can't represent client B because you have a conflict of interest with client a. And so there is some special software that keeps track of those sorts of things. And for obvious reasons, the, that software is so specialized and so industry specific that I'm not aware of an open source alternative. Um, so they virtualize windows and they run it there. Um, so that will be a necessary component to your law office. If you're doing any, doing any real casework really. Um, but yeah, feel free to write back in. I would love to get you some more, uh, some more dialed in advice, but good luck and congratulations on starting a law office. All right. Signal is removing SMS support from Android. Uh, quote, for many years, the Signal app on Android has supported sending and receiving plain text SMS and S and MMS messages in addition to Signal messages. We are starting to phase out SMS support from the Android app 
you'll have several months to transition away from SMS in Signal to export your SMS messages to another app and to let the people that you talk to know that they might want to switch to Signal or find another channel if not. They cite three reasons for doing this, and I got to tell you, Steve, I'm not overly impressed with any of them. So the first reason is privacy and security. Obviously, SMS isn't encrypted, and so by allowing people to use it as their SMS provider, they're not providing secure messages, to which my response is, no, duh. The second reason they cite is that they feel like people are getting hit with unexpected messaging bills which I would push back on for two reasons. One, I don't, I can't remember the last time I met somebody that has a cell phone plan that doesn't allow them to send text. Usually that's included in, in the plans. So in any of the big name providers, it, it, it's included. And when it's not, it's dirt cheap. If you didn't have SMS included in your plan, I find it highly suspect that somebody would go about the process of sending a bunch of text messages and then being surprised that they got billed for those messages. Seems like people would know that they're texting other people. And it seems like you would know that you didn't ask so-and-so to download Signal and you're not sending them Signal messages, you're sending it to their phone number. So I I would push back a little bit on that, but, you know, don't know what the rest of the world looks like and they would, right? So... I'll park that for a second. And then the third is creating a clear and intelligible user experience with anyone sending messages on Signal. So to that, I would say it's not the fact that you're backwards compatible with SMS. It's the fact that you're using phone numbers as the primary identifier. And I get it. They're in the process and or have moved over to unique IDs. But that's where that that's where that confusion started was when you said, hey, I can send a text message or I can send a signal message. And my identifier for the person on the other end is their phone number. That, of course, creates confusion. Um, and in the world that we live in today, SMS is very much the lowest common denominator. There are plenty of organizations and plenty of circles that all but expect you to participate in SMS. And I have plenty of clients that come up and say, well, I'll send you a text. Uh, just send me a text and I'll do that. Can you text it to me? Can you send me that? Send me that picture over text. It is the way that the rest of the world chooses to communicate. If you have a better way, if you have a different way, you're welcome to do those things, but you have to get everybody else on board. And until we've done that, doesn't seem like that this makes a lot of sense. And overall, this is my problem with Signal. And, and it, it's the fact that it's Moxie's baby. If he thinks it's a good idea, if Signal thinks it's a good idea, then that's the direction we're going to go. And if you don't like that direction, you can go pound sand. And so I, I look at that and I go, this is the problem with having a messaging platform that's controlled by one company. And then I come back to decentralization. If I have my matrix system, I've got a bridge, I've got a JMP chat account. So I have an SMS number. You can send me a text message and it shows up on, on my matrix instance. And if tomorrow uh, JMP.chat goes away, I will find somebody else who has delivers SMS messages and exposes them over an API. And then I will deliver those messages to matrix. And if tomorrow my matrix server goes away, I'll set up another matrix server. So it, 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 it puts, it keeps me in control of the driver's seat and lets me decide how I want to communicate back to my circles of other people. Plus it expands beyond text because I can bridge telegram and signal and all the other things. Um, but Steve, I know you use Signal for your SMS map app. Is this something that you look at and go, man, that's that's a real pain? Yeah, I, this may be one of the death knells for me and Signal just because 
I already have only a few people still you like actually using actual signal. Mm -hmm. And so I was using it for my SMS and my signal people. And honestly, if I'm talking to the signal people, I'm probably not doing it on my phone anyways. Like that, that was a very rare occurrence for me. Sure. I have the desktop app and most of the time, if I'm actually chatting, I'm not, I'm not pecking away on my phone cause that just drives me crazy. So, um, I don't use signal like a, a texting app. I use it like an actual chatting app, like I would telegram or something. And I want a keyboard anyway. So it probably will be removed from my phone. Yeah, this is really this is really too bad. Now, Linux Ninja in the chat room says, I've deregistered my phone and my family's phones from Signal. It was a good five years, RIP Signal. My message app on Android provides me with secure encrypted messaging that falls back to SMS when needed. I've replaced Signal with RCS. So RCS is kind of the industry replacement for SMS. It's designed with data in mind. I will tell you, I played with it a little bit early on, and maybe it's gotten better since then, but it was a pretty abysmal disaster for me when I played with RCS. I did not, I was not impressed with it at all. And on top of that, it doesn't seem like there's a, a super friendly way to expose it to external messaging systems. So I can't tie it to anything. Um, I'd be interested to know if the audience has suggestions for replacement SMS. Cause I'm, I'm loath to go back to the default Android SMS app, right? It feels for, dirty. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like a replacement. Someone out there, I'm looking at you, Charlie, will will hunt something up for me. Live at AskNoahShow.com. We would love to have your suggestions. What are you using for SMS? Do you like it? And would you recommend Steve go to it? To it? And the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us at AskNoahShow.com and stream the show live. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m., I would invite you to get the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you want to catch us live, you can, uh, or follow us in real time. You can follow me at Colonel Linux, him at Linux Evans, the show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.